Aloha and welcome back to SUP FM. My name's Simon Hutchinson, and in the SUP FM podcast every week, I chat to people who can inspire and add to your experience of stand up paddleboarding. What you'll find in every episode is a conversation with someone who's either done something incredible in SUP or who can offer you some learning, insights, and help which can add something to your time on the water. We want to say a big thank you to the sponsors of this show, Starboard. Starboard is the leading innovator in SUP and has a huge history in board and paddle design. And way back in episode 71, I talked to Sven Rasmussen, the creator of the brand. He started by producing windsurfing boards in 1994, and the success of his innovative designs led to the brand developing into the market leader in only 10 years. Starboard got behind stand-up paddling early and has supported the sport ever since. And they continue to innovate on the environmental front and they improve and push the boundaries of design and functionality, which makes their boards and their paddles perfect for the weekend warriors like me, as well as the elite level competitors. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. You can catch up with SUPFM podcast in plenty of places, including Instagram and Facebook. But if you wanted to keep it old school, then please sign up to our SUPFM email newsletter, which goes out with a whole lot of value added updates. And if you do sign up, then as a thank you, you'll also get our free guide to our favorite apps that we use on the water and which helps to keep us safe and informed. And you can subscribe by heading over to our website supfmpodcast.com. This week, we are very proud to feature someone who I spoke to back in February and who at that time was just ramping up to his last couple of months of training before setting out on his epic trip around the coast of mainland Britain. I'm not sure if the British still have a reputation for being mild-mannered and polite, but those characteristics could not be applied to our coastline, which is wild, rugged, and battered by weather and winds, and that even applies in the summer. And this year, Brendan Prince completed his objective and is now the first person to paddle a full circumnavigation of the island on a paddleboard. While a lot of adventurers out there are fired by just being the first to do something, Brendan has a higher purpose, which is what he's raising money for, to stop people drowning. And you can hear him talking about it with some real emotion in this episode. And yes, this episode is about a UK based initiative. But that aside, there is no reason why the app that he's raising money to develop can be just as useful across other countries to help reduce drowning and improve water safety across the world. So if you are listening from any of the 94 countries worldwide who download our episodes, then please donate what you can over at thelongpaddle.co.uk and click on sponsorship to give to his educational app project. And like always, links are in the show notes. So that's quite enough of me talking. Here is the ever impressive and the record breaking Brendan Prince. Hey, Brendan, welcome back to Sub FM. Oh, it's fantastic to be here and speak to you, Simon. Absolute pleasure. Well, it's been literally an epic journey since we last spoke back in February. And this year, you've become the first person to paddleboard the coast of mainland Britain. You've broken a whole number of records in the process. And you've been followed all the way around by certainly British and an international audience. All I can say really is, is massive congratulations. Oh, just that's uh, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm um, I'm humbled by the amount of support that I've received, you know. And also, the it's all about a team. Yes, you've just you know pointed the direction at me, but there's so many other people that have played a part in making this happen for me. So, just humbled by the whole experience, and just pleased that you know when you said last time we talked was february and that just seems like a long long time ago a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then for sure 
It absolutely has. And we'll discuss some of that water in a second. But but first of all, your reflections, because I think it's a couple of weeks, is it almost three weeks now when you came ashore in Torquay? And it has been an absolute whirlwind for you. I've seen you popping up all over the place and I've had friends and family saying, oh, have you heard about this guy who's just paddleboarded around the UK? And I'm saying, don't you listen to my podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, right. your feet couldn't have, have touched the ground since you got back. Tell us about some of the, the interviews and, and the interest that you've had since you've arrived um, in Tor- back in Torquay. Well, do you know what? Um, the whole point of doing this was to get this media attention so that I can spread the water safety message, get people thinking about it. On um, you know, My wildest dreams were perhaps somewhere else in Europe, not just in Britain, but the last two weeks have just been amazing i've spoke to i've had interviews from all corners of the planet uh and i've had such such fun interviews i've had in-depth interviews i've had you know what i would call quite tabloidy interviews um to the to the the real genuine interviews um just before i came on here i did a an interview for a gcse student who wanted his media uh you know add something to his media project you know, everything from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, and it's been fun. It's been fun and I've enjoyed it. And I've, you know, just like the paddle, I think if you have a smile on your face with these things, you you get so much more out of it. And uh, yeah, and talking to you um, has been something I've been looking forward to because of the way we started the journey talking to you. And yeah, it kind of gives it a bit bit of closure in, in, in a way of this this section of the journey. Well, that's very generous of you. And particularly highlights for me, um, persuaded your wife to join you, didn't you, on that BBC interview? <laughs> that was funny because with a lot of these interviews there, it's a case of now, we need it now. Um, and that particular one, I think they phoned me at about three o'clock and uh, wanted me to jump on a train at five. So I said, well, I'm only going to do it if my wife's going to be there because I've been away from her for so long. There's no way I'm going to um, disappear for 48 hours now. So they very kindly said, actually, well, we'd love to have her on the sofa as well. So, um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. The interview itself, I think was curtailed and cut short as often these things can be, but just to, um, get our faces on there as, as, as helped other people to recognize us and want to talk to us and, and other medias as well. So very worthwhile and, and, and crazy at the same time. And I hope you made the full use of the room service uh, when you went up there as well. So maybe this isn't the right place to start, but I definitely had a little bit of dust in my eye when I watched the, the Sup Junkie coverage um, of you coming ashore in Torquay. I mean, it couldn't have been a better homecoming, could it? Because it was perfect, flat water, beautiful blue sky, amazing place, um, Torquay, where, where you came ashore with a line of paddleboarders just sort of fanned out uh, behind you. How, how did that feel when you finally stepped onto the sand down there at Torquay <laughs> and, and you saw the crowd? Yeah, well, I mean, you summed it up beautifully there, Simon. Um, I couldn't have wished for a better better conditions, uh, better weather, and the volume of support both on the water with paddlers and on the beach with supporters. It was um, a surreal experience. And uh, as you can imagine, I felt like I was floating above mm. the water um, when I was coming in. And uh, just, I mean, I've, I've dreamt about that moment, that moment of just hitting the red sand of Torquay um, and stepping onto it. And um, yeah, it, it was a powerful moment in my personal life and um something i'll always have with me and, and and if i can channel that that power from that moment because i think um I th- you, you you're very special to receive just one of those moments in your life and um i feel very blessed that that was my moment and how i can now move on with it um but yeah it's, it's really hard to articulate really mm those motions and those feelings and and really it it it's lasted the last two weeks because everybody i've seen it's you know the first time they've seen me so they want to have a you know they want to have a a proper chat and that's just lovely and uh and and the things like you know using a bathroom in my own home sleeping in my bed all these firsts Mm. um that i haven't done it's very very uh just magical really just magical 
And then um, just to finish off this homecoming, I guess you won't ever have to buy a pint again, certainly not in the rugby club. And I understand you went for a cup of tea afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the talkie rugby club were just brilliant. It's right on the seafront and they, they welcomed us with open arms to come across there and just have a bit of a night afterwards. So um, I had to be careful because after three or four pints, I was... Um, yeah as you can imagine i really hadn't really prepared for those pints so um had to take it steady on that night but uh it's just so so awesome to see everybody in that environment uh with our feet firmly on land and just uh just reveling in the fact that you know this had been achieved and as a team we'd done this and and we were we were home as you mentioned, we're kind of bookending this experience. Obviously, you've still got more things to produce and to help raise money. And we'll, we'll talk about what you're raising money for in a second. But last time we spoke, you were in the final phases of your training, or I suppose just before the ramp up. And we talked a lot about Ross Edgeley and the advice that he gave you about sort of staying uncomfortable throughout, not getting too comfortable. But now you're in the situation where you've done it. You, like Ross Edgeley, have gone around the, the coast of Britain. You've circumnavigated it. If you were thinking back to those times and you were giving yourself advice before you started off, what would that advice be? What have you learned? Well, do you know what? I always say you should um, praise someone before you ever give them uh, some bad news or critique. So, you know, I would say to myself, a pat on my back for the four months of training I did because that was invaluable. Um, like to hit the ground running meant that physically it, that wasn't a burden. It wasn't the hardship that um, perhaps others were thinking it would be um, because I knew that the burden, the hardship would be the mental aspect. And I didn't really know how, how, how that was going to be. So, um, because, you know, I trained and probably my biggest training paddles were sort of six or seven hours. And then straight away, I'm going into averaging 10 hour paddle days. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, you don't really know how you're going to, how that's going to work in your head. And it took two weeks. It took two weeks to really get around, what became um, quite simple at the end. I, I reveled in 10, 12 hours of being on my own and the entertainment and how I entertained myself was, mm. was something that I learned to do. Um, but it wasn't easy to start with. It wasn't. The, the, mind, the mind, as we know, can be a dangerous thing if you leave it to its own devices. So you have to keep it busy. You have to keep it positive. Mm -hmm. um, and one way I did that was – the, the never whining about anything, you know, even if you, you, you had a terrible night's sleep or you, um, you didn't like that food or, you know, you just get on with it. You don't whine about it. You just put a smile on your face and you get on with it. And that became quite a, um, a self-fulfillment really in that you just, you just smile about things. And that, that actually then, uh, came across when I was on the water and when bad things happened, um, you just smiled about it. And when you've got a smile on your face, you can kind of defeat and go up against anything. So, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, I wasn't a, a, a laughing fool, <laughs> but just a smile about a, a quiet confidence and the fact that, well, this isn't great, but you know what? I can overcome this and I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to bitch and whine about it. it. You just get on with it. And um, so, yeah, I think answering your question, the, what would I say to myself? Um, do you know what? I, it, it went incredibly well. It went incredibly well. And um, perhaps I'd say to myself to put some more warm clothes in, in the bags um, because it, we did, I didn't really experience any, any summer um, whilst, mm. whilst paddling. Um, but other than that, it went incredibly well. And I, I thank, I know, I think that's a lot to do with planning, but also being blessed in what we were trying to achieve. And it really helps when you've got that positive um, mindset, doesn't it? Because, you know, you, you get whatever you concentrate on. So you know, if you spend a lot of time complaining, then that just makes you feel bad. There's no yeah. point in doing that, particularly if you're, you're, you're doing what you're doing. So I, I don't know, maybe a, a couple of extra air fresheners for the van. I don't know what that was like sleeping with uh, <laughs> 
with blokes in uh, in damp sweaty kit I, I can't imagine that but that was probably part of the the mental journey but really interesting you said about the mental journey because you're setting off on a really long journey and, and sometimes it can be quite intimidating particularly when you've gone through those first few days and those first sort of flushes of enthusiasm were there any days that you just didn't fancy paddling yeah well it's it's i think what you do realize very quickly is you have a personal scale so um you've you've kept it very black and white there and said you know was there a day that you don't want to paddle or meaning that most days you do want to paddle and i think all of a sudden you get this kind of scale and um for me the scale was one to 20 and anything above 18 in my opinion was pretty pretty dangerous in that i think it would uh, take my life so you kind of gauged this system and if if a paddle day was a 16 or 17 it was going to be a bad paddle day but do you know what i especially with my my own ability growing through the the, the course of the the adventure um it just meant that you could you could give it a go in a way that and still feel safe and still feel confident um for those paddles so yeah of course there were days that i thought really am i am i actually going to paddle in this day am i am i really gonna you know crack out through this swell let alone then paddle beyond it um but there's always that voice that says to you well if you don't do it today you've only got to do it tomorrow no one no one is gonna jump in and say i'll paddle this bit for you it's always there and that was something that took a few weeks to get used to that that and it seems the most obvious thing of course i'm the one paddling but you know if you close your close your eyes and hide in your your bunk in in the van it's still going to be there when you come out there's no escaping from it and at no point was i not going to achieve this challenge so that meant you just got to get on with it you just had to get on with it and that talks to something that we discussed back in february which is just taking those miles where you can you know it's all about that forward progress yeah that's that, I mean, that's that's a really good point in that some days you think well, I, I just want to get 40k 50k 60k but actually the, the two te- the 2k days of which there were plenty were just as powerful were just as an achievement and meant that i didn't have to do those 2k again so you were always moving forward and that's such a big thing when you're doing a big endurance event as long as you're always moving forward you're always making ground and you're always that one step closer or one paddle closer to the to the finish one of the things that we talked about previously as i said uh, was taking every mile but i just wonder how disciplined you were in terms of those extreme miles were there any occasions where you could have gone further and limited it just because you knew that otherwise you would potentially blow out the following day yeah, I was think at the start, the first month, I was a bit more cautious. I didn't want, didn't want an injury. Um, and as you well know, you can you can paddle for ten hours in moderate conditions, and you know when you're doing this day in day, the next day is not a problem. You don't even don't even feel sore. You don't even feel you just get on with it. But you can paddle for twenty minutes in the worst of conditions and feel terrible the next day because your body has been ruined in those 20 minutes so I had to really be careful in that first month I didn't want an injury I didn't want to damage the board um I was probably a little bit more cautious and then and then for me I'm weighing that up against actually the first month was some terrible weather in the southwest so was it the weather that or was it um my being a little bit more cautious than I was later on I know if myself now went back to that first month i probably would have paddled a bit harder and a bit longer in some of those conditions but um yeah hindsight's a wonderful thing and you just i mean you grow in in an adventure and then you grow to be able to go on to the next adventure so um yeah every, every day was a learning day and um just exciting at the same time Absolutely. Every day is a school day. And and your journey seemed like a game of two halves because it took you 
you know, quite some time because of the weather to, to get up to the north coast of Scotland. And then you absolutely flew down. Was that how it seemed to you? <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny how uh, we all have different views on it. And um, the start for me was was brutal. Wales was just sweet. It just clicked uh, going around Wales and getting around in 14 days was just brilliant. Um, and then it slowed up again in the northwest before getting into Scotland. And then once we were in Scotland, it, it just tipped the whole atmosphere of it, just took a very different turn. And, um, and I got around Scotland in 46 days, which I'm incredibly proud of. It's uh, For me, uh, you know, this whole thing is, is, is fantastic. But if someone was to say, what were you most proud of from that? It's getting around Scotland in 46 days because some of those conditions were were off the scale and that's the times where I knew I had to paddle as hard as I could for three days because that weather was going to change on that fourth day. And if I didn't get there, I didn't get to that gate that might've held me up for weeks. Um, and I never had that in Scotland. I had two sex, uh, I had two days off because of bad weather, um, not being able to paddle at all in the whole trip. Um, there were plenty of days where I could only get two or five or 10 K in, but even those were, were big achievements in relation to just those insane conditions and, you know, the headlands and the wildlife and the wind and, you know, everything's kind of against you really um, when it shouldn't be in the summer. So heaven knows what it's like um, through those winter months. Mm, well, absolutely. And, and that brings us of mind of... Um... Jordan Wiley and braving those waters up in north coast of Scotland round about December. I, I can't even imagine what uh, what that must have been like for him. Oh, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I've spoken to Jordan so much about it and just said, mate, I don't know whether to call you crazy or just respect you for it because, mm. um, but not, not just the, the weather, it's the way it changes through the winter. Um, you know, there's a, predictability to a certain degree at more moderate months which just isn't there in the winter months and um you know if you're ever going to do a challenge like this you have to have you know a paddling ability but i would i would wager that actually your ability to read the weather and to read the water is just as important if not more important mm. and up there, you know, you have to be able to read it to be able to change what you're doing within 15 minutes because it can go from um, one extreme to another in that shorter time. So, you know, through the months of winter, yeah, that's just bonkers. I mean, he had the benefit of a boat with him um, in a way that I just couldn't. I mean, some of the landings, the surf landings I had to do because I was going from beach to beach. Um were just about acceptable with the rocks and the swell and everything else. So there's no way you could have done that uh, in the winter months. Just no way. So, so tell me about the, the West coast of Scotland, because it's an area that I spent um, a large amount of time and there are some real natural hazards there. Um, I know there's Corrie Vrecken, which, which we chatted about when, when I saw you on the beach down here, how close did you actually get to that? Yeah, so Curry Reckon is a is a great one, um, and it's that it's that whole region uh, because there are there are lots of little islands between all the big islands. Now Curry Reckon, it all happens because of the two islands and it, it all swirling once against each other. But there are there are whirlpools everywhere, and to watch a whirlpool suddenly form is a is a crazily scary amazing thing to see um and in that whole region up to oban uh you know the tide off flow i you know quite quite easily averaging 30k an hour um through some of that tidal flow some of the speeds you're getting but again to be able to read the and understand that up there there's no there's no slack tide and actually slack tide can be quite dangerous at least with a tide going one way or the other you know what's happening you know where it's going to take you um you know, the way the high tides, you can get four high tides um, in a 24-hour period because of the way the water moves between the islands. You know, you, you've got to understand that water and work with it because there's no way you're working against it. Um, and the standing waves, you know, 
I laughed that I'm I'm going to put together a, a top twenty list of the most dangerous, gnarly standing waves because again, you know, a smile on your face sometimes when you come around a headland and you see what's ahead of you, um, and and more importantly, there's no getting out. There is no get out. You might have twenty k to go back one way and twenty k ahead of you. There is no get out. So you have to suck it up and and ride those conditions and understand that your ability can your kit can and you can just get through it um but yeah curry reckons the one that everyone mentions but there are lots of others around around the west coast of scotland and other parts of of britain to deal with for sure and um, just to talk about the ability to read water. So you were an experienced waterman when you set out, but you definitely added to your skills on the water. And since you've come back, you went to a talk by a friend of the show and quite inspirational modeler for the ability to read water, Tristan Gooley. How, how, was, how was that evening? Oh, great. I mean, there aren't many people that I, you know, respect beyond, um, sort of human level. And uh, Tristan is one of those just because what he's taught me through his books. I mean, I've, I've digested those books, every single detail and, and put it into practice and compared it against other notes. And what Tristan has done with his books, he's compiled it all for you. Whereas, you know, I've got 50 books on water movement that are conglomerated with his book. And that's why he's so amazing because he has that ability to to just put it across so easily. Um, mm. And it's it's a phenomenal skill. And I mean, in one of his books, he says about native people being able to literally shut their eyes and, and feel what the water's doing in certain ways. And, and you read that and you think, really? Can people really do that? Um, you know, I'm not saying I'm anywhere near that level, but I do have an ability to just look at the water, feel the water, just put, the, put your legs in the water for 30 seconds while to stop paddling. And just really feel because there's there's water moving in both directions pretty much all the time. Even when the tide's with you or against you, you can find those counter currents. You can find the way water, warm water in amongst cooler water that's moving in a direction is moving in another direction. And by using this, you can combat. You know, there are places in west of Scotland that uh, you you've only got four and a half five hours of tidal movement, and yet to actually paddle that because there's no way of getting out will take you eight hours. So what are you going to do? Because you can't, there's no way to get out and rest while the, the tide turns. So you have to con- you have to look for where those movements are. Um, because if tides, if movement, water's moving in one direction, it has to move from another direction to fill the gap that that big movement is making. So you're constantly looking for that. And the likes of Tristan's book is just, you know, over the years that I've studied what he's what he's written and others um, are invaluable and um, such an important part to this type of paddling. And that's this is one of my personal challenges now to to go to other places on this planet to see how water movement is different because it's different around this country alone and this you know this four thousand kilometres that go around it's it's different in Scotland to where it is um, going down the Channel the English Channel the Irish Sea, you know, the Atlantic, um, the the North Sea, it's all so completely different, but wonderful. And I, and I love that. That's for me was the, the exciting bit, reading the weather and reading the, the water, the flow was yeah, a big part of keeping myself entertained every day and motivated every day. You must be an absolute ninja on that. And for for th- those of us, you know, who haven't spent the, the concentrated time on the water that, that you have, it, it is really quite odd how quickly you can get to really feel the water. And I was starting my paddleboarding journey 10 years ago and I was on a, a lake and a pleasure boat came past and it destabilised me because of the, the two-inch wake that it was, <laughs> it was throwing up. And and now the ability to just function on water, whatever direction the waves are coming in, it's incredible how your body can adapt and feel and sense which, which direction water's going and how you can tune in your body to that sort of movement. It, it really is is quite amazing. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So um, in terms of working your way up there, you had a, a few days I guess at various times on shore, just because the weather 
was so awful. Did you manage to spend time in the local community? Did you get some hospitality and did you get away from the the van at all during that period? Phenomenally so, phenomenally so. Um, I always felt it was really important that you look at the conditions, you, you understand what's going on and then you make a call on it. So if it's bad, right, it's going to be bad. There's no point in standing and watching this every half an hour thinking, can I go? Can I go? Can I not go? Can I go? Because that doesn't do the body or mind any good at all. So that's exactly what we did. We say, right, we are not paddling today because it's too bad. And we're going to engage with the local, the local, you know, people, community. So, you know, on a day off, I went and taught in a school, um, a couple of hours teaching water safety to a whole school in Cornwall. Um, I had things like a golf lesson in Scotland because that's what you do in Scotland. <laughs> There's so much golf going on. Um, you know, there was, there was so much we did that was really important to just take your mind away from the impending what, cause often if it was a bad weather day, we had it off, you knew the next day it very really just cleared up and was beautiful. It meant that the tomorrow was going to be bad, but not as bad as today. So, you know, you mentally prepare yourself by going and doing something completely different and staying with the people we stayed with, interacting with amazing people around this fantastic island. And I love that because we are so, so different. You know, the island people of Scotland are completely different, but obviously the same. The the people of the Northwest, the people of the Northeast, the people of the South, you know, we've all got so much to contribute and the coastal environment, I think, is, is an incredibly friendly environment. And they've all got so much to contribute to what I was doing, you know, and the advice and help that they were giving. Although I must admit, everybody thinks that their headland is the gnarliest and that's not always <laughs> the case. Um, but yeah, to, to engage with them, to listen to what they have to say and, and just, you know, share a drink with them, share some food with them. It, it's a part of the adventure journey. So, so you spoke about um, going and teaching a class uh, on water safety, and obviously that's the whole reason why you set out on your journey. And for those of um, our listeners who haven't um, heard your story as to what really sort of catapulted you into this uh, campaigning role and 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 raising money and delivering all of this water safety training, just tell us a bit about that experience that really changed your life. Well, I think to sum it up, um, because I do find it hard to go into detail of it. Um, so just to, to really sum it up, I spent 35 years um, on the water, you know, from the first time I actually taught something on the water to 25 years of teaching you know, as a classroom teacher and a head of outdoor education to surf lifesaving teacher, lifeguard teacher, um, stand up paddleboard, open water swimming, you know, all those sailing, all those elements. And within all of that and my lifeguarding, to be brutally honest, I've seen too many people die. And when that happens, it changes you as a person. And the only way I could deal with that, and it's not so much the, the, the actual seeing the graphics of it, but it's seeing the effects that happens to their families. Mm. That's the big one. And I said to myself, I can't, I can't stand by and let another family go through that again and see that. So, you know what? I changed my life and to the point that I gave up teaching two years ago now and to give just, you know, if that one child takes that message on board and, 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 and grows up with that message to be able to tell others and their own children um, on an island where we're pretty darn clueless about water safety and drowning prevention. That's my mission. Um, and I wanted, you know, I've tried everything. I've tried everything going into the, to schools, creating books, creating in worksheet, everything you could possibly imagine. Um, but it's the 21st century. So, you know, all of that really has got to be channeled into an app. Uh, something that is is absolutely cutting edge but unfortunately these things cost lots of money um mm. so how else could i get this money how else could i get people to listen to me talking about water safety and then think well actually i might give 
a quid or I might give in a company's, you know, 5,000 pounds, which a company gave this, this week. Um, the only way I was going to do that was to do a big kind of what people think is a crazy thing, um, which is something I love because I think it's the, one of the best ways to see water and that's paddleboard around, around our island. So that was the gist of it. Um, and the next six months are such an important part of the journey of creating the money for the app, putting the app, you know, properly out there ready for next September's start of the academic year. So I think it's worth getting into the detail of this app because people hear you know, all about technology and kids engage with technology, but there's a real reason why an app is more effective. And, you know, it, it, it's all about making it fun and building in all of those sort of behavioral elements that makes kids engage with it. It's not the technology itself. It's the ability to win badges. It's the ability to see stories being acted out on the app, isn't it? it it's about engaging people in a way that they can actually do something. They can take action. They can gain things. They can gain um, badges or whatever on Absolutely. the app. And, 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 and that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And I mean, if I give one example, one of the games, probably the easiest to explain is uh, the game on Rip. So you can choose your beach. So it might be your local beach. And the idea is that eventually we'll have hundreds of beaches that you can choose. So your local beach. Um, and there it is in front of you in the game. And this is something I used to do with kids when I took them to the beach. We'd say, right, you know, there's 20 Frisbees. You've got a Frisbee each. Throw the Frisbee into where you think the rip is along this beach. Um, and that's the game. So actually, your, your, your avatar is standing in front of the beach that could be your local beach. You've got 20 Frisbees, and you've got to fling them into the, where you think the rip is. And obviously, then the, 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 the Frisbees are floating as well. So there's a bit of evidence to prove what you're doing is right or wrong. Um, and you've got 20, 30 seconds to throw these Frisbees to gain the points and then obviously the next day or the next you're going to try and beat it or you can actually challenge your mate to try and beat your score and that's only part of the rip kind of teaching and apps that kind of just say right this is a rip and this is what you look for you know kids are going to lose interest in the same way they would in any other medium but by playing the game they don't actually know they're learning about what a rip looks like and how, where it's going to be and how it's going to form and how you've got, you know, standard fixed rips or you've got flash rips. What are the difference? And, you know, and understanding that. And then the next part of that game is actually you're in the rip. What, what are you going to do to stay alive? What are you going to do to get out of the rip, but all gamed. So that's the crux of it. That's why it's never been made before. That's why it costs a lot of money. Um, but it's going to be moduled from an educational point of view. So, you know, children with a class can say, right, well, today we're going to play the first five modules and, and Miss or Sir might play 10 modules. So they're always one one step ahead of the game and can out then stop and let's talk about that particular game we just played. And there's also support stuff within the app for teachers to use to to give them that heads up and a little bit more information to answer those questions that, you know, kids being kids will will definitely ask. So it's engaging with children how they actually are rather than how how we'd like them to be. And I think that will probably a huge, be a huge benefit to adults as well, because you're certainly looking at paddle boarding. Some of it is a result of the huge quantities of people out on the water this summer. But there's both a, a lack of knowledge amongst new people out there. But also there seems to be a, a reluctance to, to learn that or certainly to engage. And, you know, I was telling you, Brendan, when we um, when we met on the on the water here, that the beginners episode that we we published, we published four episodes right at the beginning of this season. The one that got the least downloads by quite some degree was the safety one. And you know, we try and make sure that it's not grim stuff and that it's interesting but still it's very very difficult to engage which is why i think your app is such an outstanding idea and it would be great if the paddle boarding community as water users could really get behind you and just put a few quid in just to help you to um to you know to, to get it into existence because it, it seems to me like an absolute no-brainer 
Well, exactly that. And I, I'm, you know, I'm amazed at um, certain organizations or haven't done it already. And, and it's got a lot to do with money, but it's got a lot to do with, you know, the 30 odd years of what I've done has created all the different games and I've got them all ready to, to be created. Um, and that's the hardship because it's got to be relevant. It's got to be teaching, but it's got to be challenging. It's got to be fun, you know, and the games aren't just for the coast. They're for inland waters as well. And you've hit, hit the absolute nail on the head. Pride, pride before a fall, you know, and, and people aren't willing to come and listen. Or, you know, sometimes I, you know, on this trip, on this adventure, I would go up to people and say, guys, you know, if you carry on paddling in that direction, one, you're never going to get back. Two, it's going to be dangerous because that wind is going to change any second now. And some of the time it was greeted with, oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. But most of the time it was greeted with, gritted teeth oh really is this man telling us what we should be doing um you know and i always try and put it across in the most sympathetic just helpful way just like guys this is what's happening you know you know take it or leave it it's not, you know no drama to me um but you know we, we think on this island that we've got this amazing uh maritime heritage which we have got but I think people think it's drip fed through to us, whereas it's not. And you only need to go to a busy beach this summer gone to kind of see some of the ridiculous things that are going on and, and the amount of rescues that have happened. Um, it's just off the scale this year, but not just by our amazing RLNI and, and Coast Guard and other organizations, SNSGB, et cetera, but also by general people on the beach who have seen people doing things wrong and, and have been there to help out um has been off the scale yeah 100 percent. and in in terms of your fundraising i mean we'll give you an opportunity to to um talk about where to re refer people but where could people contribute if they wanted to contribute towards your app well the website um so on the website there are two two you can sponsor which is all towards the app or you can donate, which goes towards the seven charities and, and, and is gift aided. The reason we can't gift aid um, the app is because the way it has to basically, I don't want to put all this energy and, and money into something that in two years time, you know, doesn't really work, is out of date. It needs to be kept fresh. And the way we want to do that is free to all school children, free to every school. But hopefully, 10% of all that free to schools, the parents, 10% of the parents will think, well, we'll buy that as well. And we only need about 10% of the parents to, to spend that 199 or 99 pence to actually mean that we can keep it fresh and we can keep it alive and we can add more beaches and we can add beaches around the world. You know, um, it would be great if we had an app that they can play on the plane because they're going to that destination as well. And and share the wealth of knowledge from other countries. I mean, Australia, New Zealand um, are so far ahead with with their water safety teaching because it's ingrained in their society, let alone their education system. So, you know, bringing that on board as well um, is all part of the, what we're trying to achieve and get the best the best app together with the most influence to help and and be fun. That's the main thing. Children, it has to be fun, and if Adults see children having fun playing it; they'll want to give it a go. So that's the general, the general gist of it. Absolutely, you've got to beat your son or your daughter on the app. Haven't you? <laughs> totally, totally. Okay, so let's talk about the second half of your trip. So I've heard you talking about some wildlife encounters, but you had a really special experience, didn't you? I presume you're talking about the orcas. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't, I, it's funny. People say, oh, that must've been so special. Must've been, I'm not, I don't know what I would do. Uh, terrifying is definitely one word that I would use within it. Um, kind of life changing. Yeah, I can, can get all that. But at the same time, I, I quite happily never have that again. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the situation we, I had three encounters in one evening from, uh, orcas, killer whales. Um, the first one was the most shocking in that it was a dark, bit, bit half eight. And bearing in mind at that time of the year, it gets dark, proper dark, or Scottish dark and about midnight. So quite often I would be paddling into that sort of time. And it must've been about half eight and uh, dank, bit, bit of wind, but 
quite a bit of sort of that drizzly on the on the surf zone uh, rain. Visibility wasn't that great, and I'm paddling away, and all of a sudden, what I thought was a fishing boat came up behind me, and. In one hand, I'm thinking, well, how did I not hear that fishing boat? And on the other hand, my body's telling me that is a whale. <laughs> and it came up with such speed. It had a bow wave in, ahead of it. And I kind of turned on my board um, to kind of do a back foot turn into whatever this thing was coming towards me. And I literally just stepped straight off the board. Um, so to my to my surprise, I'm in the water um, as this just sheer massive black and white whale past the other side of my board. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, do I panic and get on the board or do I just stay in the water and not panic and just let it cruise past? And I think I was wise to do the, the, the latter. I just stayed in the water and it cruised by. And then, you know, the, the, it, it, I was blown away by the sheer size of it. And I still, you know, now it, it does wake me up at night occasionally, the sheer size and the, the fin comes out of the water like a, like a, it's huge. <laughs> so it, it came past me and I, I jumped, I then got back on. And as I'm getting back on my board, one cruised past my feet behind me. And, um, it was a hugely humbling, vulnerable experience. And, um, if ever you thought about you're just a speck <laughs> on this massive planet, this massive universe. That was, that was the moment that I thought, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm nothing out here. Um, and they're amazing things. And I know they were just coming to just check, check me out. And, uh, they did just that two more occasions later, actually different whales came to check me out. And on the third time it was getting quarter to 10 sort of time. And, a little bit more duskish and um i actually thought enough's enough i need to get off the water now because each time they came to me they were the patterns the latter ones i mean the last time they came to me one headed straight for me um which i realized now was just to attract my full attention on that one because when i thought i actually started to get a bit close now two two came up behind me um, so they, it kind of feels like they're hunting you until they realize that you're a human and not something they can eat. So at that point, that's when I thought, right, do you know what? I'm getting off the water now and I'm going to leave this experience and hopefully never have it again. Mm. But, um, but at the same time, yeah, stun it. But, um, I still haven't quite realized the, the best way to articulate my feelings on it. Cause it was quite, quite something at the time, quite something. Mixed emotions. Definitely there you kind of flew down or at least it seemed to everyone else or certainly to me you flew down um that east side of the uk and you had a few long crossings i guess the wash and so on what were the highlights of, of, of that coast and did you have the same impression that you came down really quickly yeah i think the difference um with the east coast is there's not lots of ins and outs so you know at the top of scotland you've got the big um further forth and you've got to spend a day or so coming in and a day or so coming out of these things um and to cross in in somewhere in between whereas on the east coast you're just heading south um mm -hmm. there's lots of man-made stuff and that's the, the point i'll make about nature nature you can understand and work with and you know cliffs and headlands and, and all and firths and all these things you can work with and understand estuaries it's the human impact of harbors and shipping lanes and concrete um, rebounding waves, um, wind farms, you know, all these things make it much more difficult. And that was very apparent on the East coast. You know, there's lots mm -hmm. of wind farms. There's lots of big gnarly shipping lanes that you have to cross. And yeah, that's, that's, that's where a lot more planning comes in a lot more time spent on the radio, speaking to boats a lot more time um, speaking with uh, the Coast Guard and the uh, shipping lanes themselves in BTS, talking to them and, and making sure everyone's aware of me and I'm safe and they're safe and working with them was was hugely important part of what I was trying to achieve to show it can be done 
with the right, right uh, level of communication and understanding um, and hopefully get helping them to understand that I'm not just a, um, a clueless stand-up paddleboarder that's going to definitely be in trouble because all stand-up paddleboarders, when they go offshore, get into trouble. And I was really trying to put that across. And one story I've got, which probably epitomizes that, is uh, Dover. So Dover is a, a crazily busy uh, harbour where you've got ferries and container vessels and lorry vessels just flying in and out. And um, I had a, a 30 mile an hour wind on my back that day with the tide. So I was being taken to Dover very quickly. Um, so I knew I had to hold my ground whilst I communicated again with the harbour master who I'd spoken to earlier that day to pre-war Nerman and everything. So Dover Control and Dover Control said, yes, you know, there were two two vessels coming in, two vessels going out. The name of that last vessel, when you see it go past, that's that's your set kind of two or three minute window to get across before the next vessel comes in. So, of course, the 30 mile now wind is pushing me closer and closer and I'm fighting it, but not wanting to get too close because the rebound off the walls of, of Dover was just crazy. And uh, obviously, I've got the, the radio in front of me and I can hear everything that's going on. And uh, a ferry was coming in, big, huge ferry. And it, and it only a, a British captain could kind of sound like this. He said, um, Dover Control, Dover Control, this is so-and-so ferry. Um, do you realise there is a paddleboarder just to the side of our shipping lane? And Dover <laughs> Control came back and said, yes, he's, he's in full communication with us. He's just waiting for you to pass for his window to get across. And I just thought, yeah, that, that epitomized, um, trying to work with and, and the view they've got on paddleboarders, but trying to diminish that, that view and, and get a better view for paddleboarders that we can do this. You know, we're only a little vessel, but we are a vessel and we're trying to do what we're trying to do and, um, make the most of our amazing coastline. So in that communication aspect, when I, I was talking to Sean Sykes, who really drummed up a, a relationship with the various coast guards she had contact with uh, while she went round the coast of Wales. Did you drum up any friendships with the, with the local coast guards as you went? Absolutely. And, I, and they, they talk to each other as well. So they, they're passing on the information as it goes round. And that kind of grew to the point that one for uh, Dover Coast Guard and Solent Coast Guard. Um, yeah, it was incredibly friendly and they actually especially on the South coast, I would get four to five phone calls whilst I'm paddling. Um, and thankfully I had, a, I've got a watch that it all comes through on. So it's really easy for me to get a phone call as well as a radio. Um, and the radio is not so great cause I've got a shortwave radio. So mm. the headlands interfere with that. So actually phone on the South coast was much better. And they would mess, you know, ring me and say, Brendan, can we just clarify your position? Because we've had someone else ring up saying there's a paddleboarder. 10 miles off the coast and we're just checking it's you um and yeah that relationship is hugely important and you know the community the coastal community is a strong one and we're all all trying to look out for each other and and respect and understand and protect each other so that really came across especially on the on the south coast where you know they'd had all the messages from all the other coast coast guards and understood what we were doing um because the the first couple of coast guards did think i was a little bit crazy and i think they didn't really think that I would ever have the ability to uh, paddle around the whole of Britain. <laughs> so we're entering the, the final lap of your journey now, going down the south coast. You passed those shipping lanes in Dover, and, and and it was at that point where, you know, I don't know, the sun shining on the righteous or whatever, but there was an easterly wind, and that really propelled you down. So particularly when you entered, um, you know, my waters. So you stopped at Portsmouth, didn't you? And yeah, and that felt good because you had a good crew down there welcoming you onto the shore of South Sea. Yeah, absolutely. And it was funny because it the the way the weather was predicted, I mean, on the South Coast, it's so much more predictable. Um, and to have those easterlies was just brilliant. And, uh, you know, uh, 50 to 60K repeatedly day after day, getting some great ground, which meant that actually I had a bit of a half day to come into Portsmouth and make the most of some fab people to meet up with um, met up with Sup Junkie, Shorties, um, Jordan Wiley, and lots of family and friends. And it was just really good. Um, but of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, 
perhaps the weather might change. And um, yeah, it did. So, you know, when I got to uh, Portland, just before Portland, I had two days where the weather was just uh, coming from the West and just meant I could get nowhere. Um, old Harry's Rock was my nemesis mm. for two days. I couldn't get around it. Um, it was just way too strong. I mean, coming out of Sandbanks, it took me, it took me, what was it off the top of my head, six and a half hours to get from Sandbanks to Stud, Studland. Yeah. Which is not even five or six K. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that was the level of the wind. So I then had two days where I couldn't really get anywhere, um, which meant that it was suddenly a little bit more pressured to get back by the six o'clock on a Tuesday. So I just really had to dig deep and I had three massive days, 60 K days um, to get back by that Tuesday, six o'clock. And basically the media, the BBC had said, if you come in at six o'clock on a Tuesday, we'll give you national coverage. If you come in on a Wednesday, we might not be able to give you regional coverage. So it was quite important to the mission of what we're trying to do and added on a bit of pressure for sure. But yeah, I paddled, I paddled best under pressure. You certainly did that. And the evening that I met you just by the Isle of Wight, you had to make that decision, didn't you? You had to do, you had to crunch the figures. You had to work out when exactly you were going to be coming ashore. So did you build any contingency into that? Did you anticipate that you were going to get held up around Sandbanks and Studland? Yeah, I mean, you constantly, and this is something that people have said, you know, you must have been exhausted by the time you finished this whole 141 days. And physically, I wasn't exhausted at all because my body, the body's an amazing thing and it adapts. And I was just happy to paddle like that all day long. But what I was, was, was mentally exhausted because of that planning, constantly planning, um, knowing exactly, I mean, going through the Solent, for example, and out to the other end. There's there's lots of, you know, you've got Portsmouth Royal Harbour to get across, the shipping lane to get across, you've got Southampton to get across, you've got the tidal flow, you've got lots of other ferries at different points. You've got to get out at the right time and you've got that six, five hour, 45 minute, six hour window to be able to do that. So that takes a lot of planning um, mm. to get it right. And I am, you know, I, I'm quite meticulous with that. And take great pride in that aspect of my paddling in that only three times did I ever need to exit because it wasn't quite right that, you know, I didn't hit that. I, I was meant to be there at three minutes past three and I got there at 10 past three and the tide had turned. So I had to exit, you know, I take great pride over that aspect of it. Of course, the weather can sometimes change that for you, but also it can benefit you in that as well. So big part of it and um love that part of it really but it does take a huge toll on the on the 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 just the, the mental effort so yeah i was glad to kind of see the back of that in a way and that mental effort to get in for the tuesday yeah i was fairly exhausted by the end of it really and uh, then of course we, we've already mentioned your glorious homecoming on uh, tour abbey sands which i remember because i'm ancient the radio one roadshow always coming from <laughs> But um, yeah, the first time I've ever seen it. I was too young to attend those, unfortunately. But. Oh, really? But oh, there's some fond memories of Radio Two, Radio One roadshows in in Torbay for sure. Just to, to mention your support crew, you mentioned earlier on Harry, Will, and you also had a team who organised your accommodation on the way through, and you had a really good setup for that. Just tell us a bit about. Um, about the the crew that just helped you on a daily basis just to keep that forward progress so the awesome long paddle team um so it really started with harry being my kind of um did everything for me from carrying my board when you know you've been paddling for 12 hours to be able to have someone who would just pick that board up for you for that walk up the beach meant a lot um but he would cook the food and just the general logistics and sort it and then Will doing the same, but Will was in charge then of all the photography and getting all those amazing images that he, he achieved. Um, so they were the, they were the on the ground crew who were just amazing in the likes of Scotland, where they had to leapfrog to kind of find where I was and just check I was okay. And you know we, we'd go 
full days or two days without seeing them sometimes, but they don't would always be there at the best place and find the best place for me. Um, and one, one important thing they did was just spotting in that if I was coming in on a, a gnarly swell, you know, from if I've never surfed in on a beach before, it's really hard to be able to see the best way to come in. Mm. So just to just using signals to give me the best line in to surf in um, was just, you know, in, yeah, so essential. And then um, at the two girls back at, uh, in Torquay, um, Zoe, who was always answering the phones and just passing messages on to us and just working those messages out, whether they needed to come to us or she could sort them out was fantastic. And then Lucy, who Lucy's got some of the best gift of the gab out there. So she would just phone all the local campsites or wherever and just say, and we we're going to actually record her spiel and um, mm. play it out there. Cause it is quite impressive. She's, she's good at it. And she would always get somewhere for us. And, you know, some of the most amazing campsites we stayed at, uh, you know, often we'd literally roll in at 10 o'clock at night, um, you know, have a shower because that was just amazing to be able to have a shower because most of the time I was just having bucket showers up in Scotland. And then you'd be rolling out again at six, five in the morning. So you'd hardly be there. But just to have that facility was fantastic. So, you know, those guys played such an important part as as did the people that came and met me and helped me when we were going around to see family and friends at the most amazing places just to give me that one night of encouragement and spurring on plays a big part in creating the team that achieved the long paddle so you don't miss sleeping in a, a damp van with two guys then <laughs> do you know what surprisingly good night's sleep surprisingly good night's sleep you kind of got just used to it really but mm. as you say that it's the damp and the cold um yeah I, my bed is is much nicer for sure just an awesome awesome achievement and you know speaking person it's been fantastic to follow you all the way around you haven't mentioned it uh, so far but i think uh, me sending you the british lion scores for the first test probably helped you on that that particular day it was a pretty abject performance by the lions throughout so uh... yeah do, but do you know what i was paddling and i couldn't obviously have that afternoon off just to watch the lions I, the conditions were paddling conditions and to have those messages coming through pinging on my watch and it would be like they've just you know scored or a penalty or whatever was was phenomenal and that adds to the the whole thing simon so you really did play a part to that i appreciate it even though the lines were fairly uh shocking this year this time around well there's few um so few rugby players out there i've got to take my conversations where where i can so uh, glad <laughs> Been, been at help. So, so just before we finish off, and then obviously you share the details again um, about where people can contact you, where people can make a contribution. Let, let's just, for the record, state the records that you um, achieved during your paddle. Right. So, I mean, they're all going to be officially um, looked at, got all the files that we've got from it. So, starting at uh, the first person to circumnavigate Scotland um, and 46 days to do that. Um, there is a record of 14 days to get around Wales and we're just looking into seeing if anyone's done it quicker than that. Um, the first person to paddle from Land's End to John O'Groke's via the coast, um, staying on the coast all the way. Uh, so that's a record. Um, the longest ever SUP journey and that's the difficult one to clarify and that's why it's taken a couple of weeks because every kilometer has to be verified and checked and everywhere it crossed over so there isn't an uh, you know an inch of that um, and th that's going to be around 4,000 kilometers which is 1,500 kilometers further than the, the previous record um, and the final one is the circumnavigation of Britain um, mm. doing that in 141 days and again that needs to be checked through and, and and verified and yeah so it's some exciting stuff and the world media love that aspect and uh, then want to talk to me about the water safety and everything else they love that kind of the world record bit and um, so many so much of the world media has then asked me well are you going to come and paddle around australia i've had that i've had paddle around vancouver island i've had paddle around new zealand i've had paddle 
uh, from most places you can think of, some are fairly sublime and some are fairly ridiculous. Mm. And tempted by any of those offers? Uh, a few. A few. Who knows what might happen next year? I hear Mauritius is very nice. <laughs> it's funny. My wife said exactly the same thing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time, Brendan. We've really, really enjoyed following you. And this is not over. I understand that um, you're putting quite a few materials together to, to give the real skinny on the trip. Um, I understand there's a, there's a book in prospect and I think Will's pulling something together as well, isn't he? Yep. So there's a book and there's uh, the documentary that will go th- with it. Um, and the idea is that will give us greater um, momentum then over this next sort of six, six months to have a push again for the app and everything we're trying to achieve for that and get more funds. The more funds we get, the better it will be this app, the more, you know, little things like the better level of noise that the app creates. It all costs money to create these noises and have good sound on an app. So, you know, there's so much to be done. The next six months are vital. And I hope we can spark more interest, as I say, with the, with the book and the app, because I've got so many stories from this amazing adventure and to put those down in, in, in black and white is just a fab thing to be able to do and great memory for me. So looking forward to all those parts of this second part of the journey, really, Mm. um, it's still continuing. So just remind me where people can offer their support for you and to contribute to the app and your fundraising. Well, of course I'm, I'm open to anybody contacting me. So the, the normal channels, um, through contacting, you can go through the social media. So we're on Twitter, um, Instagram and Facebook, and you can personal message me from those and I'll endeavor to get back to you as quick as possible. Um, but on our website, www.thelongpaddle.co.uk, thelongpaddle.co.uk. You can contact us through there, or indeed you can either sponsor, which is the money that goes to the app. Or you can donate, which will go to the charities. And if you do donate, don't forget, please, to to gift aid, get a, get a bit more money for those are but my seven chosen charities from from this endeavor. So, yeah, just yeah, message um, at any point. I'm very open to just a chat. And I've had some fabulous chats with people over the last couple of weeks. So, uh, yeah, just reach out. I'm, I'm up for that for sure. Thanks so much for your time, Brendan. And this shouldn't be the last word, but, you know, Thanks also to your family and particularly your wife. They, they must have been the most incredible support and obviously very excited about you coming back. So thanks for sharing your experience with us. Look forward to the book and the documentary. Um, take care and uh, hopefully I'll see you on the water again and maybe share another beer. Simon, absolutely God bless you. And I just, just thank you for what you do because you're sharing the message and that's so important. So I'm really grateful, my friend, really grateful. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brendan Prince. I really admire positivity in the face of adversity and Brendan's method of being grateful and developing that habit daily is something I really want to work on. All the links are in the show notes so if you want to contribute to Brendan's app then that's where you look. As ever, I really appreciate your amazing support for the podcast and for your love of the sport that we all share. So until next week, thanks for listening and I'll see you on the water.